Well, as we come into Psalm 116, where it's, it's basically about the halfway point of the Bible, just dead, dead center, we find uh, the psalmist uh, giving us this psalm of thanksgiving. And in this time, he is reflecting back on his life, back on a moment in time when God helped him, when he cried out to the Lord, when God helped him. And in turn, he responds with gratitude. He responds with thanksgiving. He responds with loyalty to the Lord. And and this is really uh, the way that we ought to live that we ought to live as people who see see God's work in our lives, and what we do is we respond. Now, whether we want to admit it or not, and whether the world wants to admit it or not, everyone is responding to God. The matter, or the, the, the really, the type of response is really what matters. The type of response that you have. Because God is, again, declaring who he is through creation, uh, through morality, through the cross. He's declaring again and again and again who he is. And it is up to uh, us, up to mankind, to respond to who God is. The real question that we have to answer is, who do you say that he is. That question is posed again and again and again throughout the scriptures. Sometimes it is posed through uh, the, the narrative of scripture when we see the trajectory of salvation. We see it posed at the cross. We see Jesus posing the same question to his own followers. The people that as we read the Bible, we would think, well, of course that they're Christians. Of course they know what's going on. Of course that they're, they understand who Jesus is, but then we find Jesus asking that same question to them. Who do you, who do you say that I am? What Jesus is, is getting at is in that passage is that there are many who say like, oh, well, Jesus, you're, you're this type of person, or you know, you're, a, you're a miracle worker, or you're here to help people, or you're here to feed the hungry. And Jesus does do many of those things throughout the scriptures. But yet, he doesn't allow himself to be identified as just a miracle worker. He doesn't allow himself to be someone who is known for feeding the hungry. He doesn't allow himself to be known as someone who is healing the sick. Again and again, he puts his identity on display. This is the question that we all ask, how we respond to the Lord, how we respond to the Lord really says a lot about what we believe and who we are. And here, the psalmist comes writing this psalm of thanksgiving, and in this moment, what he's doing is he's responding to the Lord. He has been changed and transformed by the work of God, and and as we move through the psalm, we get to see a glimpse into his into his mind. We get to see his struggles. We get to see his hardships that he dealt with. This is, at least for me, this is why uh, I love documentaries. 
because you get an idea of what was happening behind the scenes. You get the, the accounts that are, uh, that are being shared from you know, other parties that were there that are not a part of the main storyline. You get to kind of see behind the scenes a bit. I think this is why uh, you know, our culture so enjoys reality TV because you kind of see the narrative and then you get the interviews where it's like, oh, well, here's what was really happening. And here, through the psalm, we get this understanding of how David was really working, how he was really struggling, what he was really dealing with. But he bookends this, much like our psalm that we looked at last week, with words of thankfulness, with thanksgiving. Here he hears, he's, he's making this confession that God has heard his cries, he's heard his hardship, his difficulty, and he proclaims God's goodness. He proclaims God's faithfulness, and then he makes this commitment to be faithful to the Lord. And so we come to verse 1, and we read this. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Now, as this psalm is being communicated, there's clearly this understanding that the psalmist is looking back to a past memory, something that has happened, and looking to the future, the assurance that he can find on the basis of this response to who God is. He says this, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Now, we have talked in the past many times about how God is the goal, that he is the treasure, he is the greatest joy that we have in life, and he is our deepest satisfaction. Again and again and again, this is what the scriptures tell us, that joy in Christ is more valuable to us than anything else. That our relationship with Jesus is more valuable to us than anything else that we could seek to find happiness in. But yet, as he says this, it kind of causes our ears to perk up a little bit because it kind of just almost sounds like he's, he's using God. It kind of sounds like that. He's saying, I love the Lord. Well, why, why does he love the Lord? Well, because God's heard his voice. God, God did something for me. He helped me. Of course, I, I think we all like people who respond to us. I enjoy you because you responded to my email. I like, you know, I shared a great idea with you. I shared something with you. And so if you've responded to me, it's like, yeah, that's, that's generally great, great exchange. But consider what David is saying. I guess he's, uh, you know, potentially the, the author of this psalm here. And as he communicates this, as he shares this, what is he saying when he says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy? What he's ultimately making is a confession. He's making a confession that he is weak that he needs help, that he needs rescue. This is why he loves the Lord, because he has come to the end of himself and realized that he can only be saved, he can only be rescued by God. Right? If you're out in the ocean drowning, 
You love the lifeguard when he's heard your, heard your voice and you're out there shouting, like, help, help, help. You, as you see the lifeguard making the way toward you, as he comes toward you, you have to be at a fundamental place of humility to receive the help, to ask for help. You can't come in a prideful manner. You can't come with an attitude. You see, pride is what keeps us from coming to God. Pride is what keeps us from, from, from making that confession that we need help. Pride is what keeps us from receiving the good things that God has for us. Because we want to be seen by others, viewed by others in a way that we've, we've got it all together. But what David does here is he says, I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. He's coming out and making this confession that he, he just doesn't have it all together. That he's, he's in a position of hardship, difficulty. He goes on in verse 2. He says this, because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. He says, because, because God has heard me, because God has, has received my words, I will call on him as long as I live. This past uh, situation that has affected the psalmist so deeply of being in trouble and, and experiencing hardship and experiencing worry and anxiety and fear, oppression, persecution, those from the outside coming in and trying to attack the psalmist. We find that the confession is this, God's heard the voice. He's heard this cry, he's heard this plea for mercy, and has responded. And so what he says here is that this has really unlocked for him a secret, that when he calls upon the Lord, the Lord will answer him. It's unlocked for him a way to live, and this is why he commits to this. Because he's inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. What he's saying here is, I've, I've learned the secret, I've learned what it is, that I need to get through life. I've learned what it is that I need to make my way through life day by day to live where I'm not worried, living in chaos, where I don't have anxiety. He says, I will call on him as long as I live. There's a lifelong commitment first here that we see, but calling on the Lord is not just like, hey, I'm going to pray a bunch. That's not what he's getting at. To call on the Lord throughout the scriptures had some, had some deeper meaning. What, what it actually meant was that there's making, the psalmist is really making this resolution. The writers of scripture are making this, this commitment to follow God exclusively. To call on someone would mean that you, you are committing to be a part of this commitment. He says, I'm going to call on the Lord. In Romans chapter 10, verse 11, Paul speaks similarly, and he's speaking to this lifelong commitment. He's speaking to this uh, trust in God exclusively. He says this, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Finding this new identity, this new life, this new name. Then he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To call on God's name, to call on him as long as you live, is to make this commitment, this trust in God exclusively. Not just as something that we're saying, but as an act of worship. He's going to depend on God for the rest of his life because God has helped him. God has demonstrated his trust. or He's, he's demonstrated his faithfulness, and so therefore the psalmist is like, I can trust you. I can trust you. Now this is rooted in a deeper story. This calling on the name of the Lord, God's faithfulness to his people. If you go all the way back before there were a group of people who were Israel, in Genesis chapter 12, we read this. Then the Lord appeared to Abram. Like he's not even called Abraham yet. It's so old school that he's called Abram. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. What, what is being said there is that Abram has been developing this relationship with God, and he's so deep now, he's seen God's promises that are being made to him. He's heard the word of God that's going to be, uh, be that is given to him, this promise to increase his offspring, the promise for land, the promise for flourishing. We haven't even gotten to, like, the covenant yet in, like, you know, uh, chapter 15. But yet, he is there in the process of walking through the steps of going deeper with the Lord. And it's here where he builds an altar, a place of worship, and then calls upon the name of the Lord. And so to call upon the name of the Lord is to trust God exclusively, but to live a life of worship. Now, too often, we want to call on the name of the Lord, like, like briefly or momentarily, or just kind of like when we need him. Like, we're calling upon the name of the Lord when we're in trouble. But what the psalmist says is, his calling upon the name of the Lord is so important, so fundamental, that it will, it will uh, completely be merged with his identity, with all of life. Now, he gives us a bit of insight, understanding into some of the things he was experiencing, right? Verse 3, the snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. So we've got these two things that sound pretty bad, snares of death, like not super great. 
Uh, and then we have the pangs of Sheol. Now, last week we talked about Sheol a bit, and th- essentially what this is is uh, it's described in the Old Testament as a, a, the place of the dead. Uh, it's kind of the, the grave is another kind of synonym for it. Uh, and, and so we have this idea of this kind of uh, two synonymous things, death and Sheol, reaching out, grabbing, seeking to, to uh, snare the psalmist. And not only that, it says, it says this, the snares of death encompassed me. Like, he's already caught. He's already in trouble. It's not like, oh, I can, see, I can see him coming. I can see the snares of death coming. He's like, I, like, it's already got me. Like, I'm already in trouble. I'm already wrapped up. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, these two, uh, two topics come up quite a bit. Sheol and death. And they're always described in this way. As those who oppose uh, in such a way that they're very aggressive, right? Death seems very aggressive. uh, But are looking to crush and destroy. To bring sickness. To produce hopelessness. And I think that's kind of what the psalmist was experiencing here. I don't know if you've ever experienced a season where it feels like the snares of death are encompassing you. You just feel stuck. Like you're in a spider web, like you can't move and you don't know where to go and everything feels upside down and it's hard. It's in those moments where you really begin to feel hopeless. Like I'm stuck. What's the point of this? How am I going to get through the day? What about tomorrow? You feel the deadlines that you have ahead looming over you. The uncomfortable conversations that need to be had or have already been had. All of these worries and anxieties, they begin to flood. And this you know, here is a good description, the snares of death. Now, I think for the psalmist, there was also some threat of uh, physical, physical violence, physical death here. Maybe a great sickness uh, that many commentators believe existed here. But I think he's at a place, and I think we've all kind of been at a, at a place at some point in life where there's a despondency, a hopelessness, a anguish that is so great, it's as if, you know, death itself is like, it's visiting you, holding on to you tight. But we see the response. What did the psalmist do? Verse 4, Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. 
deliver my soul. The only way to survive death, the only way to survive, is to find refuge in the one who conquered death. Look, that's how you, that's how you get through it. If you're going to try to fight it on your own, you're done for. But if you come to the one who's defeated death, of course you're going to survive. Of course you're going to make it through. And, and really how, how the psalmist writes here, we don't really see it uh, in the English translation as much, but he uses uh, a verb here that means that it keeps going. So, All right, I don't know what happened there. That was weird. I'm not touching anything. All right, we good? He uses this verb that is, it essentially means that he is in the process of continuing. He doesn't just call on the name of the Lord once. He doesn't just ask for help once. He doesn't ask the Lord to deliver his soul once. He keeps asking. He keeps returning. He keeps coming back. Like, uh, like someone who really has this desperation. He returns again and again and again and again and is asking the Lord, please deliver me. Please rescue me. And throughout the, this text, this is what we begin to see. Later we'll see this again in verse 13, and we'll see it again in, in uh, verse 17. But he comes with this attitude. Right? Consider, consider the words of the Lord here in Psalm 91. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. The protection of God comes with knowing the name of God, being associated with the name of God, calling on the name of the Lord. And, of course, this name of the Lord doesn't just uh, refer to, like, oh, like, you know, you know his name, but you know his character, you know who he is, you have a relationship with him. Right? I think, I think we all uh, can say that we know some famous people, but we don't really know them. We don't really know them. We don't really know their favorite foods. We don't know them in, in an intimate way. We know, we know, like, we can know their name. We can recognize their name, but we don't know them. We don't have this intimate knowledge of, of what their family is like or what their upbringing was like. None of those things are, are, are something that we can speak with any confidence to. So when he says here that we have to know the name of the Lord, that we're calling on the name of the Lord, it's, it's, it's this idea of getting to know the Lord. Now, we come to verse 5 and 6, and we see this, this third portion where we see worship begin to come forth through the declaration of what God has done, through the rescue. 5 and 6, uh, we read this. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. God is gracious, of course. He's given us what we do not deserve. We don't deserve to be a part of his family. We don't deserve new life. We don't deserve protection. Of course, he then says that God is righteous. Because that was really the, uh, the counterpoint to grace. The idea of grace is really one of unfairness. <laughs> it's that you and I deserve uh, one specific thing. We deserve judgment, but we are given 
life and family. We're given abundance. Like that's not something that, that we deserve. And so there's this idea of unmerited favor in grace, but then we find God is also righteous. All that he does is just and fair. And then lastly, he's described as a God who is merciful, that he has absorbed this payment himself, that the just judge has received payment, that he has received what is required, but he himself has taken that upon himself. Of course, these three things are best viewed through the cross. We see God's mercy there, in that we are not paying for the price at the cross. Jesus is there. We see God's righteousness at the cross, and that he is rightly judging sin. And lastly, we see God's grace in that through Christ's blood shed at the cross that we are then brought into the family of God. And because of this, we find the simple description in verse 6 that the Lord preserves the simple, that those who are not trying to protect their reputation, those who aren't, you know, trying to be crafty and to justify their existence and to make sure that others know that they're good, but the simple is really those who trust in God, who come with an attitude of humility, depending upon God. And the psalmist, he does something here that uh, is incredible in that he identifies with the simple. He's like, this is how I've, how I've made it through. The Lord preserves the simple, and he says, when I was brought low, he saved me. He's, he's calling himself one who is in simplicity, trusting the Lord. Return, O my soul, to your rest, verse 7, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. A declaration that God is so gracious, so merciful, so righteous. No, he says, there's no reason for you to worry, no reason for anxiety. But the Lord has dealt bountifully. He's not someone who's trying to withhold good from you. He's not trying to make things difficult on you. But his thoughts towards you, his attitude towards you, is one of generosity, of abundance, of love. When you know that, you can return to the Lord with rest. He's seeking to provide it for you. And then he gives this description in verse 8. You've delivered my soul from death. There's a threefold deliverance that happens here. You've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. Now this is described in the Old Testament, but when you look towards the New Testament, we find a similar description. In Romans chapter 8, verse 10, 
Paul writes this, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The soul is delivered from death, Paul says. It has come to pass. Eyes delivered from tears. Now, when the psalmist writes this, he's not saying like, oh, like somebody ate like the extra food at the table and like you were like upset about that and you cried. Or like, you know, you went out to the field and uh, one of your lambs was like killed by a wild animal and, you know, you got like a little less rich than you were. Like this is not what he's getting at here. When he says... The eyes were delivered from tears. What he's speaking to is really a deep grief, a deep hardship. Something that would throw your life into chaos. But yet in the New Testament, we find Paul again writing in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. In verse 10, he writes, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So he doesn't say that as Christians we'll never experience seasons where there are tears. What he says is that there will be joy in the midst of these tears. That the deep grief that is there won't control us. It won't overwhelm us. There will still be some of the sadness as the result of going through hardships and difficulties here. But yet, there will be deep joy, always rejoicing. Finally, we see that the feet are delivered from stumbling or falling or defeat. In Jude chapter, uh, there's only one chapter, I guess. Jude chapter 1, verse 24. <laughs> The doxology of the entire book ends this way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Do you see what's happening there? He's saying to him, to Jesus, who is able to keep you from stumbling. You will not stumble The soul has been delivered from death, eyes from tears, feet from stumbling. This has been accomplished by Christ. Therefore, the psalmist says in verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. To walk before the Lord simply means that you're going to be in the presence of God, wholly understood, wholly exposed, wholly a friend of God, committed to him completely. You're living, walking before him in a way of continual obedience. God able to inspect all of your actions? The psalmist says, I'm walking about before the Lord in the land of the living, right? What was against him before? Sheol, death. So what he's really saying here is there's this idea of conquering. The grave has been conquered. Sheol has been defeated. Death 
does not have the last word. The idea here is that this is really like a victory dance. I'm going to walk before the Lord in the land of the living. He's like, what's up? Kind of taunting death almost. And then the psalmist writes this, verse 10. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. So two statements that give us a little bit of insight, give us a little bit of understanding about how the psalmist is writing here. First, he tells us this. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Okay, I want you to understand this. His faith, the psalmist's faith, wasn't being exposed as being weak. It, it wasn't saying like, oh, you, you're, you're losing your faith in the moment of hardship, in the moment of uh, difficulty. What he says here is rooted in his commitment to the Lord. So if you're in a season where you're feeling hard, like, like things are hard, when you're in, if you're in a season where things are feeling difficult, the psalmist wants us to know that it's okay to talk about it. It's okay for you to share about it. It's okay for you to communicate this. Too often, the way that, that we live is you don't want to let anybody know that you're going through something hard, so you kind of keep it to yourself. And then you get yourself in trouble because then nobody knows that you're going through something hard and then you just feel alone and isolated and the enemy gets you and it's just kind of this cycle that continues to happen. But the psalmist says this, if you are confessing the hardships, this, the difficulties that are going on in your life, it's healthy, it's good for you. Now he says, he makes another confession he said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What he's kind of saying here is a bit of this. I was feeling like overwhelmed, and so I just started like saying, like, everybody's liars. Like, I don't trust anybody. Like, you guys are all crazy. Like, I can't, like, everybody's against me. Like, that's kind of how we get sometimes when you're like distressed and you're in anguish. Every, like, everybody is a problem around you. But the reality is, is that there are probably many faithful friends that the psalmist had. There were many who were loyal, who were wanting to help, that, you know, shouldn't have been called liars. But at the same time, I want you to understand this. And if you get anything, get this. He's also kind of right. <laughs> He's also kind of right. Because the truth of the matter is, is that all mankind are liars. Liars in the sense that they will never, no person ever, will be able to satisfy you at your deepest level. And they might try and try and try, try to make you happy, try to change, to give you what you want, try to, to accommodate you, but it will always be a lie. No matter how truthful they think they're being, it will always be a lie because only Jesus can really meet that need. 
at some level, all mankind are liars. Like, it's just because we can't keep the promise. We can't keep the promise to satisfy those who are in who are in trouble. We can't keep the promise to rescue those who are experiencing difficulty. What we instead should do is to point them to Jesus, the one who can rescue and save, the one who can satisfy. And so the psalmist writes in verse 12, stick with me, almost done. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? So he kind of gets to the end of this and he's like, look at all the great things that God has done. Oh my gosh, like this is crazy. Like I asked him to help me. He helped me. I was going to die. He saved me. He rescued me. What should I do for him? What should I do? Well, we know from the scriptures that you, you cannot repay God because he has no needs. Right? This is what, uh, this is what we find in, in Paul's uh, confession here. He, he's preaching to the people of Athens in Acts 17. And he gives a brief description of, of who God is. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's like, God doesn't need anything. He has everything. But yet we find the psalmist asking, How do we repay God? Well, there can be no, no repayment of God. Any repayment that you would try to make, which what we often try to do is really just an insult. It's an insult to his grace, to what he's given us. You try to say like, oh, like, thanks for doing those great things for me, God. Like, I'm going to help you out now because, like, you probably don't have it together. You probably need a little hand. You need, you know, you could maybe use a break. You're not probably not strong enough or powerful enough. You're probably aren't able to meet the needs of others. So, like, let me, you know, like, you go on break, and I'm going to jump in here, and, like, I'm going to do some stuff. And I'll let you know when I'm done, and you can come back and, you know, maybe clean up a little bit of my mess, but I think I'm going to do a pretty good job. Like, that's not how it works. God doesn't need our help. Ever. But yet, there is some desire to respond in some appropriate way. And this is why the psalmist asks, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? God has given me great benefits. What shall I do for him? Verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. This is what we do. Lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Here is uh, the beginning of this answer. Now, I want you to see a contrast. Last week, we talked about another cup. The cup of foaming wine this wine of judgment that will be poured out on the foes of the Lord. But here we find the opposite, the cup of salvation, the cup, something freely offered, something given. Man being this recipient, before he has anything to give, before 
there's anything to pay back. He's like, God is giving this free gift, the cup of salvation. And so, for the psalmist to pay back the Lord, he says, is to keep on receiving from the Lord. So that in receiving, God's continued grace is magnified and he's shown to be more gracious, more merciful. It's, it's an act of worship and a way to repay the Lord by to keep asking from the Lord, to keep receiving from the Lord because it demonstrates his character, who he is. It puts that on display for others. Receiving all that he has for us, all that he wants to give to us, is how we repay him. We just keep asking. We keep receiving what he has for us. psalmist writes in verse 14, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Now, this is linked with calling on the name of the Lord, right? We already said calling on the name of the Lord. To walk before the Lord is to make this wholehearted trust and commitment to be a part of his family, to walk with him, to know him, to enjoy him. And then this act of worship, of calling on the Lord, and now he, he kind of pushes in a little bit further to talk about vows to the Lord. And what he's speaking of here is these vows to the Lord are, uh, are really these uh, vows of praise and worship and thanksgiving. Now, there's a difference here with vows. Uh, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all the people. Their vows and oaths are different. There's such a thing as a vow, there's such a thing as an oath. Uh, Vows are made to God. Oaths are made to people. Right? This is why when we go to a wedding, we have wedding vows. Wedding vows are there because those vows are made before God. Like, people are attending there, and they're acting as witnesses, but they are made before God. Whereas, you know, if you're a part of, like, our government, you take an oath of office. Or, you, you know, you might take an oath to uphold the law. Or some, some of these more uh, commitments that have to do with human agency. But vows are made before God. Now, vows are voluntary. Nobody was required to make a vow. But it showed devotion to God. And so the psalmist here says, I'm going to call upon the Lord. I'm going to worship the Lord. I will give him praise. I will, I will focus on who he is. I will lift him up. I will be there to do this. He's making this, this vow that he's going to continue calling on the name of the Lord. A vow of praise, worship, thanksgiving. How will he pay this vow? He says, I will pay my vows to the Lord. He's going to keep holding up that cup of salvation and keep calling on the name of the Lord. The Lord's faithfulness again and again and again. Now we pivot in verse 15 to kind of uh, a verse that, you know, oftentimes we pull out, but it sits here in the context of this idea of death. And the psalmist writes, and he puts this in here because earlier he was dealing with death. That he earlier was at a place where he was near death and he called upon the name of the Lord and the Lord saved him from that. 
But what he ultimately gets to here in verse 15 is saying, like, it's not always a bad thing. Of course, we think of death as a bad thing, but we find a specific description of the, that the psalmist gives in verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now, he's not saying, like, the death of the wicked, like, that's not precious in the sight of the Lord, not, not just general death, but people who belong to him. It's precious. Their experience in death is precious to him. You know, for a number of reasons. One, in death we conform to Christ. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, for if we, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall, shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. As Christ has died, as we die in Christ, we are then resurrected in Christ. But more than this, this precious nature of the death of the saints is because it translates us, it communicates us to God's presence, to his kingdom, where he's desired to know us and to enjoy us and to be with us. And it ushers us from a place of hardship and difficulty and sorrow into his presence where there is joy forevermore. And so the psalmist brings this contrast to say, like, I was almost in this hard place where death was overwhelming and I asked the Lord to save me. But yet, <clears throat> there's still a way, there's still a purpose that God uses uh, that death for his glory. And then he puts this idea of God's sovereignty over all things and over him on it. In verse 16, he does this through the lens of looking at uh, our servant roles. O Lord, I am your servant, he says. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. Now, we probably all missed this right away because it just sounds like he can't get his life together and figure out what he wants to say in this sentence. But he's really saying three things that are increasing in commitment. First, he says this, Lord, I am your servant. This is this idea of being the personal servant of God. The personal servant of God, or, or he's really using this rooted in the culture. So if someone's a servant, like, hey, like, I am uh, your, your servant in your household, and I'm taking care of and overseeing all the things for you. I'm under your lordship, under your orders. Whatever you ask me to do, I will, I will do it. But then he says this, again, same thing, but with a, an added clause. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. Now, the son of your maidservant part is really what we want to focus on here. He's like, he's like, still says, like, I'm in the same class. I am a servant. I'm not my own lord. I'm not ruling my own life. But to be the son of a maidservant just means that you are um, an inherited servant. Like you were the child of somebody else who was also a servant, and so you're brought into this household through inheritance. And then lastly, he says, you have loosed my bonds. Now this is the third category of uh, a servant, a bond servant. One who was a servant, but has been made freed by the master only to say, 
you have been so good, so kind, so faithful to, to me. I find refuge and safety in your house. You've provided for me that I choose to continue on being your servant. And this is how the scriptures speak of us as Christians, that we are bond servants of Christ, that he set us free, and yet we return to him in commitment. Another way here that the psalmist is saying, I will walk before the Lord. He's committed. We finish with this doxology in verse 17. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. There it is again. I will pay my vows to the Lord in Jerusalem, pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Now we come to a time of thanksgiving, of worship, of praise, of adoration of God, but I want you to note two things. It's corporate and it's communal. This is an individual who's processing these things. He deals with them individually, and then he goes straight to the community, and he's like, let's go. He's here to let what God has done in his life be brought out into the public square so that those other Christians in his life might see him and that it might spark the flame of worship in their lives. What the writer is saying is that your faith isn't private. There's no individuality within uh, the kingdom of God. We are individuals, but we don't live an individual Christian life. There's no lone ranger Christians. You're not like, oh, I'm out doing my thing, like I'm not going to tell anybody about what I'm going through. We already saw that. You're communicating these things publicly. You're communicating them with, uh, in the community, right? He says, this is done in the presence of all his peoples, in the courts of the house of the Lord. He's like, I'm going out into the middle, in the midst of Jerusalem. We are to put our lives in the middle of others so that it begins to start a fire and that we all begin to, to have this blaze that increases as we are near to each other. This is a psalm of thanksgiving about how to be thankful, how to make it through hard times, but a psalm of thanksgiving. Now, the interesting thing about this psalm is that this is a halal psalm, which, if you're not familiar with that, what it means is that this psalm is specifically one of the psalms that was sung by Jesus with his disciples on the night of his betrayal and rest. If you read in uh, Matthew 26 or uh, in Mark 14, there's this time in the Garden of Gethsemane where they're praying and they're, and they're spending time with the Lord, and it says, and they sung a hymn and went out. This is one of the, the hymns that they were able to sing together. This is one of the things that they would communicate rejoicing this 
psalm of thanksgiving. Except for when Jesus sang it, I mean, come on, you know it took on a different meaning here. Because the shadows of death, the, the, those cords of death were encompassing Jesus. Like, it was the night before his, his death. He's there in the garden asking the Lord to see if there is another way to be done with death. All of his thoughts were oriented toward that. But in that moment, as the Lord spoke to him and gave him direction, every one of our faces was there present, saying like, no, you have to go to the cross. Because of each person, they can't pay for their own sin. And so Jesus, with his disciples, they sing this song of triumph. At the most difficult hour, as time is going by, they sing this song of triumph over death. Right? If you look back at it, the snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Verse 8, for you have delivered my soul from death. As Jesus went to the cross, this is certainly what happened. Jesus wasn't delivered from dying. He was delivered from death. Two different things. He still died, but he came out the other side. He conquered the grave. This is why Peter describes the resurrection of Christ on the day of Pentecost this way. In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, he says this. Peter knows what's up. He says, God raised him up, speaking of Jesus, loosing the pangs of death. He specifically goes to this spot, to this place. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. How hardcore is that? It was not possible for him to be held by it. It's as if Peter's saying the... the these cords of death, these things that were, were encompassing Jesus that, that brought him down into the grave as he was laid there into the grave, dying and wrapped up by, by his followers, right, that you would traditionally do there to take care of somebody. You wrap them up tightly with all these spices so the body didn't stink. You had like all of these super tight grave clothes on them so that way the flesh wouldn't like start to like be all nasty. And yet when when Jesus is resurrected the grave clothes are there. He's like, I didn't need those. Thanks for that. <laughs> that was nice of you, but I don't need those. 
I'm not, I'm not going to be staying here. Conquering death. It's not possible for him to be held by it. And this is how we make it through. This is how we make it through. The psalmist made it through by calling on the name of the Lord, but we look to that day where Christ has conquered. He has defeated Satan. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He's the one who has made a way. He has dealt bountifully with us and that he's brought us into his family. That when we are overwhelmed, when we are weary, when we are tired, he says, come to me and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It cannot be said of Jesus that he is a liar like mankind because he's the only one that satisfies. He's the only one that's defeated death and he's the only one in which we can find refuge. We can find safety from death. And so we respond together As the psalmist responded, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Now it's time to respond. My favorite part. It's time for us to respond. What matters is how you respond. We're here this morning to offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving, to call on his name, to worship him. And so we pay these vows of worship this morning, for he has rescued and saved us. Let's pray. We'll jump into it. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness that you've given us entry into your family. We're thankful for your work at the cross. We pray that you would help us to trust you. Help us to find our identity in you. Lord, we want to call upon your name and we want to walk before you. And so help us, Lord, to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow you. Help us to be looking to be satisfied in you. Lord, recognizing that others who are around us are, are not going to be able to satisfy us. They won't be able to keep the promises that we think we're going to be able to make. But Lord, only you can do that. And so Lord, we want to say thank you. We want to worship you. Be glorified, Lord, in your church. We love you. Amen.